Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Welcome back to another exciting episode of this podcast, and if this is your first time tuning in, I'd like to say welcome. I really appreciate you checking out the podcast. It means a lot to me. I hope you all are doing well and you've had an excellent week or month of of training. I got to say for myself, it's been a rough going lately. I probably complain about this stuff every three or four months, pulled muscles, back spasm, things like that. And But my goodness, as I'm getting older, these things just don't go away. I've been, I've been struggling with a, a, a pulled groin for, gosh, about three months now. And, and I'm able to, to roll through it for the most part. But doing any serious judo rondori is a real, real tough one for me because it's just the the movements are just are too dynamic. And you know, if I got somebody doing, you know, that's really good at uchimata and they catch me with that, it really puts a strain on on those muscles. So it's 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 been a struggle for me the past uh, few months doing judo. I I still get out there. I'm still gonna go tonight. Uh, by tonight, tonight is. Wednesday for me, and that's one of my judo days is Wednesday. So I think for me, at least for tonight and probably in the next couple of weeks or months, I'm going to have to stick with uh, doing what's called Yakusoku Gaiko, which uh, is otherwise known as some people call it French Rondori. It's a style of Rondori where you really are, it's almost throw for throw, but you're really going 50%. I mean, it's Rondori, but you 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 really have to have a training partner that that knows exactly what you're going to look for in doing, and it's it's non-cooperative for sure, but it's just not the hard, you know, eighty percent, ninety, hundred percent. Some people tend to go, and unfortunately for me, I I can't tend I tend to not be able to do French Rondori with guys that are like in their 20s and they're young and they're bigger and stronger. It's just like I, I, I sit there and say, hey, let's just go a little light a little bit. We'll just move around, you know, resist a little. And then they're like, okay. And that usually means for them, okay, you go light and I'll throw. So it's not it's not quite, um, quite uh, as beneficial for me. But I do have some training partners in particular – uh, as you guys know, Judo Joe, we tend to know what pace we like to go at, and and it's it's a good rondori. So I'm I'm just gonna have to be very selective with my training partners, and and that pretty much means like maybe two or three people on my list, and that's about it. So on this episode of the Judo Chop Suey podcast, uh, Steve Scott returns. I'm sure you guys, uh, actually I know you guys have enjoyed the, the couple of other times that I've had Steve on the podcast. Well, he's going to be joining me today to discuss his latest book called The Judo Advantage, Controlling Movement with Modern Kinesiology. Now this book, as of the time of this recording, was released just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's available for purchase on on Amazon.com as a, as a Kindle or as a heart or as a paperback. You can also, I believe, you can go to like your local bookstore, like Barnes and Noble or or Borders, if that place still exists. I'm not even sure, but but I'm gonna have Steve on to talk about the book, his motivations for writing the book, and and to gather some of his thoughts on on coaching and preparing his students with the many principles discussed in this book. Now, I would like to add full disclosure. I have not 
finished reading the book yet. I'm still uh, going through it. And I got to say, though, from my perspective at my age and what my personal goals are in judo, this book could not have come out at a better time for me. Because, and and this is going to sound a little odd, when, when I'm doing judo, when I'm practicing judo, my personal training goals is far less about throwing people than it is about getting my my body in the perfect position to execute throws. Because nowadays, you know, I have enough skill that I can perform throws and really muscle them through and 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 do a lot of stuff just to get somebody on their back. But that's not that's not the approach for judo that I want to have moving forward and you know with the rest of my life, especially as I'm getting older and slowing down. I am personally very interested in the kinesiology of judo and more interested in getting myself in perfect position than it is just just getting anybody on their back by any means necessary. And because I feel that by getting into perfect position and having exquisite timing that the throw is going to happen anyway. So I I hope that makes sense. I you know, by getting myself in the proper proper position I can do Rondori with lighter people or even kids and it doesn't feel like I'm muscling through things because of a size and strength advantage. I, I so I that's kind of what I mean when I'm I'm really looking to improve my positions and throws and such versus doing whatever it takes to get them on their back. I, I hope that makes sense. Anyway. I also want to touch on fight to win judo competitions again. I, I managed to see one and I'm gonna give you guys a little bit of a uh, thoughts on what I saw in one of the contests that I watched. I, I think you guys will find this interesting. You'll find that I've maybe backtracked on on some of my uh, previous opinions. Not that my opinions were negative in any way, but I I had some question marks, and after seeing a match, I I got some of those questions answered. And a lot of you, I had some great listener reaction to the last episode of my podcast that. I had with James Wall and and running a a judo club and becoming a or being a professional judo instructor. So had a lot of uh, reaction for about that. Some uh, overall positive, but but certainly some negatives. And I want to get into uh, some of the reaction uh, from that interview. But first, I want to talk about the fight to win competitions that are specific to judo competitions and their events. Now. I talked about this initially and brought this to light uh, for all of my wonderful listeners back in January when I had Judo Joe Kaiser on as a guest co-host. And back when I talked about this event, I had discussed potentially signing up for Flow Grappling um, because at the time I thought it was like $12.99 a month, which I thought it was a pretty good deal. But come to find out, when I when I sat down to watch this event live, I found out that that's $12.99 a month if you sign up for a year subscription. Otherwise, it's like $30 a month. And I, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this in episodes since that episode back in January, but I just can't justify for myself spending $30 a month for any streaming service. And it's not so much because I'm cheap, even though that's that's part of it for sure. It's more, it's more out of principle. I, I wouldn't pay thirty bucks a month for Netflix. I, I just there for me with anything that I buy, there's a price point, and if it exceeds a certain price point, I'm just not going to buy it. Even if I love the product, I'm just not going to do it. So it's not 
or I should say this is not any criticism toward flow grappling. It's just for me as a consumer, that's just not a price point that I'm willing to spend money at. But a lot of people do apparently, so all the more power to them. That being said, I did manage to see a fight to win judo competition that took place in, or I should say on March 9th in Dallas, Texas. It was against, uh, it, it, the two competitors were Alan Shebaro and Garrett Andrews. Now, the person that posted this on YouTube, it's a, it's a just shout out to a fellow whose username is Eric Pig, Pig with two Gs. And I got to tell you, I mean, this this guy had a fantastic recording of the event. For for starters, he, he recorded it in landscape mode. Uh, God bless you, sir, because, you know, I can't stand when YouTube videos or any sort of videos are, are recorded in portrait mode and you see the black bars on the side. I just That just drives me insane. But anyway, whoever this user is put... Uh, had had the action he captured the action really well i i had thought this was a rip from the original feed from fight to win but no this 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 looks like it was uh, somebody's camera so again i talked about this on my episode uh several months ago the production value for these events is just top notch i i i just couldn't believe how good the production is and you know the, the 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 competitors coming out to music it looks it's as if it's the ufc except it's it's grappling it, it's really cool the lights the colors um the crowd it's it's just it's a it's a really cool vibe and i think it's great to put judo on this kind of stage without i don't know i don't mean it in a negative way but without the air of traditionalism so this is the only contest that i've watched from fight to win and i gotta say <laughs> this works and I want to walk back uh, some of my comments that I made uh, in that episode a couple of months ago about my dislike for the two Epon rule and the thing is in this context on what who on who this crowd is and what they're trying to achieve here I I'm like 90% in agreement with the two Epon rule I totally get it and I think the most important thing to having the two Epon rule is that at least in this match that I watched, there was no rolling through on throws. These guys were really attempting to secure a hold down upon a throw. There was no pause in the contest. You didn't have somebody make a throw and then look right up at the ref to see if his hand is up in the air. And that's a good thing. And given that this crowd is, is I would venture to guess, largely a Brazilian jiu-jitsu crowd, they're going to want to see some groundwork. And and that's what these two gentlemen were offering in this competition, is that uh, one of them threw was Sayanagi. And you know what I really liked about it, too, is that the ref called the pawn. The match didn't stop. It, it, they, they kept going. They kept fighting. As a matter of fact... Garrett Andrews threw Alan Shabaro with a beautiful Ipon Sayanagi, but instead of just stopping up and looking at the ref, he uh, Alan got back on his feet and Garrett attempted to throw him with Ipon Sayanagi again. So the the action was very high paced, and then later on in the match, Alan had a very nice uh, Uchimata uh, against Garrett, and he went right for the. Yoko Shiogatami, right, right, or maybe Munegatami, hard to tell with the video, but um, regardless of what you want to call it, he went right for the hold down. And I also got to add that the standard for Ipon 
at least in this match and some of the highlight videos I've seen floating around the interwebs, the standard for Ipon is very high. Uh, certainly higher than what I see on the IJF World Tour. And I think that's a good thing. And, and, and I, I get why you have the two Ipon now. I see it working. So that's why I say I'm 90% there with it. The other 10%, when, I, when watching this particular match, uh, it looked like these two gentlemen in terms of skill were, were fairly evenly matched. And as I surmised in my previous episode, and, and this is why I was against the two Ipon rule initially, or I, I shouldn't say against it, just not really in, in favor of it, is, look, I've said it, it's very hard to get any pawn on anybody that, that you're evenly matched with. And to get two is is really a tall order. I And I, I think it's, that showed in this particular match that I watched, especially when the time limit is only seven minutes. I shouldn't say only seven minutes, but to, for two Ipon, that that's... Uh, that's not a lot of time, especially when two people are skilled. And especially when you consider the standard if a pawn is very high, which that's a good thing. Um, but it's just, I would venture to guess that that's very hard to achieve. Now, if it was somebody like a, a ham and egger like me going against somebody like Ryan Reeser, yeah, I'm sure he could get two pawn on me in under 30 seconds. But when people are evenly matched, uh, that's going to be a tough, tough thing to do. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the cons that I saw in this particular match. And please, uh, if if Alan and Garrett happen to be listening to this podcast, this is not a criticism of your performance. And this is not a criticism of your strategy. Please understand that, that I am not criticizing uh, either of you two. You guys fought well. It was a very, very entertaining match. But I must say, seeing these rules in action, I was hoping to see a lot more groundwork or attempts at improving positions than I did. So to further illustrate what I'm talking about, I saw a lot of use of the ta- uh, of the turtle for stalling. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think that for this crowd, uh, 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 largely Brazilian jiu-jitsu crowd, that I don't think that's a good look. Because... It almost reinforces every single uh, stereotype that a lot of people have about judo, judo's groundwork. Or maybe stereotype's not the right word. Uh, maybe, maybe the criticisms that you might hear from, other, from people outside of other sports when they talk about judo groundwork. You know, so a lot of people complain about, oh, they just, they just sit there and, and turtle. They don't do anything. Well, unfortunately, in this particular match, I saw a lot of that. And I would love to see... A rule change or maybe fight to win experiments with this kind of rule change that if a person turtles too much or if they use the turtle just to stall that I don't know maybe add a Shido and maybe four Shidos can equal an Ipon score for the other competitor so let's say the matches are are, are tied at zero well you know if you get four Shidos then the other person gets one uh, the equivalent of one Ipon you don't win the match but you get the equivalent of one pawn. And then maybe you can set it up in a way where you cannot have a winner by Shido. So I'm not suggesting that you can win by Shido. Not, not if it's 0-0. Zero, zero. So, and I'm just freestyling here. So maybe maybe if it's tied 0-0, zero, zero, you know, the first person to get four Shidos, you know, the other person gets any pawn score. And then now the match can continue. And then if the competitor does it again, 
you know, they, they're not really racking up Shido's anymore, but they're really losing the match, so they have to push the action. And you don't even have to call it a Shido. Call it a penalty. Call it a call it a delay of game or de- delay of contest. But I think when the contest is seven minutes long, you need two Ipon to win or a submission, and a competitor can, can eat up 30 seconds of clock uh, by by using the turtle. I I just think the turtle needs to be eliminated uh, for stalling purposes. I, I don't know what Fight to Win does in, in its Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments uh, or, or competitions, but I, I can't imagine Jiu-Jitsu guys staying in turtle for 30 seconds or more without doing anything. And as I said before, the great thing about having the two Ipon rule is the competitors, you know, they get one score. They're still fighting. They're still trying to angle for position and stuff, but... If you turtle in judo, you're stalling, and I don't like seeing that. Now, again, I want to make it perfectly clear. I am not being critical of either of these gentlemen's skills on their feet or on the ground. As a matter of fact, I I believe Alan Shibaro is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and I'm pretty certain that Garrett Andrews also is doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, though I'm not quite sure of his rank, but uh, Mr. Shibaro certainly, I think he has his own club, uh, Shibaro Jiu-Jitsu. So, I, you, you know, I know these guys know what they're doing on the ground, so I don't want anybody anybody listening to this segment to come away from this thinking, bah, these judo guys, they can't even deal with the turtles. No, because, because Alan Shibaro certainly is a Jiu-Jitsu black belt, and he definitely knows how to deal with the turtle, but when you incorporate the turtle in competitions, you know, groundwork takes a lot of energy to to open up that turtle, to turn around. I mean, it's it's a lot of work, and you know, in these matches, you got to conserve energy, especially when you can lose on your feet just as easily as you can lose on your back. So, anyway, fight to win. Hey, the, the competitions are great. If you can watch it, if you're willing to shell out the thirty bucks to watch the next fight to win, uh, for both Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Judo, I highly recommend it if that's your thing. But like I said for, before, for me, if I'm not shelling out 30 bucks for Netflix, I'm not going to shell out 30 bucks for Flow Grappling. Sorry, guys, but I love what you guys do regardless. It's time for my favorite segment of the Judo Chop Suey podcast. What time is it? Listener reaction. So I had a lot of great listener reaction, not necessarily just an email, but uh, there was a lot of discussion on, on Reddit. Uh, there was certainly some email that I received. The interview with James Wall, which I thought was a fantastic interview, and I appreciate all of you for for listening to that interview because I'm, I'm it's probably one of my better ones, quite frankly. I I've said it before. I I don't feel that I'm a very good interviewer, but I I enjoyed doing that interview with with um with James and I, I felt that I got a lot of the questions right and I felt that the discussion went in the direction that I had hoped that it would go. Uh, the the reaction was very mixed. Actually, let me take that back. It wasn't so much the reaction was mixed, but there was a, a, a lot of people liked the interview. A lot of people liked what James is doing, but there are some things that a lot of people didn't like uh, about what James uh, does and how he runs his business and I I think I I thought it was very interesting to see the reaction mainly a lot of people have problems with the belt testing fees and a lot of people have problems with uh, judo being in excess of a hundred dollars a month 
But it was the belt testing fees that generated the strongest reaction, um, both on Facebook Messenger, uh, an email, and and uh, even some of the posts on Reddit. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm not sure what to make of belt testing fees myself. I mean, I'm not a club owner. I've never ran a business myself. So I, I don't know how I would approach it. I, I suppose what I might try and do is... If I have an idea of what those fees would be for a test and I, I anticipate having maybe two promotion uh, periods a, a, a year or maybe four, I might take the cost of the, what those tests would be per individual and maybe spread that over 12 months and, 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 and include that as part of the price. I mean, heck, I mean, doesn't Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of sort of do that? You, you might not pay a belt testing fee, but some of you guys out there are paying anywhere between $150 and $225 a month. How do, you, how do you know that belt testing is not a part of those costs? You really don't. You just, you just pay that price just because you want to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I suppose if I had a club, I might go that route and have the prices a little bit higher, but it does encompass all of that, uh, uh, that, that kind of thing. But in terms of my accounting and budgeting, I would not necessarily count uh, that increase of price toward my, you know, w what goes into the business or into my pocket. That 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 increase would be a separate uh, uh, part of the ledger or whatever you want to call it. You know, and some people out there supported the belt fees because, a as as some have aptly pointed out, and I've as I've seen myself personally, just about every successful martial arts school out there, whether it be Taekwondo, karate, Kung Fu, whatever the case may be, most of them have belt promotion fees. And I would venture to guess that if James were to get some of the onslaught of uh, uh, criticism about belt testing fees and, and these criticisms was coming from club owners, I would venture to guess James would say something along the lines of, you know, well, how's that working for you? And I'm not attempting to put words in James's mouth. I'm just saying that James is a professional judo instructor with one of the largest clubs in the United States. And he has seem, seemingly found a formula to have a successful judo program. And Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I, I look, I've never been there, but I can't imagine it's anything like L.A. or New York City. But I also can't imagine it's anything like, I don't know, what, Leesburg, Florida, someplace way up north that hardly anybody lives. So my point is, is that it's it's clear that the prices that James is setting for his program is a proper market value. And I know there's some people out there that may say, well, you're pricing me out of, of being able to train at your club. And well, I mean, that, that may be true, but how is that different than a lot of other martial arts that charge exorbitant amount of money it's like what i would venture that anybody else would do i know that i would do i would just find another club i mean where i go to an ebor city jiu-jitsu if, if they were charging 200 dollars a month i i would have to find another club and i'm pretty sure there are some places in tampa bay that that charge that amount or, or close to it certainly more than 150 a month and like i mentioned before with the fight to win subscription services that's that's beyond my price point. And for some people, the, the, the money that James charges per month is going to be outside of people's price points. And that's okay because it's for him, 
it's certainly not outside of the price point for a lot of other people. So he seemingly found that sweet spot and and he's making a living off of it. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's a model that a lot of ju- other judo cl- uh, club owners should be looking at and, and trying to grow their their clubs. And, you know, one more thing about the belt promotion fees. Now, I didn't pay any belt promotion fees for my uh, Q ranks, but I did for my Don ranks. That's for sure. And if you look at the at the at the promotion fees for USA Judo, those numbers go up and up for no reason whatsoever. So, for example, I believe with USA Judo, if you are promoted to Shodan, you have to pay one hundred and fifty dollars to USA Judo. If you're promoted to Nidan, you gotta be you gotta pay one hundred and seventy five dollars. And I think for Sandan, it's like two hundred dollars. So you're paying belt promotion fees. <laughs> you know, through if you stick around in Judo long enough, you're gonna be paying belt promotion fees. And quite frankly, I don't understand why not only USA Judo but the other uh, the other Judo organizations apart from from uh, the Judo Black Belt Association, they also charge fees that go up and up and up as your rank goes up. And I don't understand why. It, it, it's really silly because it's not like the certificate that they are creating and the, the price for postage that they're sending it to you is going to cost any more money between Shodan, uh, Nidan, Sandan, etc. You know, so I don't understand... It's it's funny to me that I don't I rarely see people go up in arms, you know, when they got to pay three hundred dollars for for a Godon certificate. But you know, belt promotion fees for a Q rank, it's it you know people <laughs> some anyway are losing their minds. So I appreciate all of the listener reaction, both both like I said online through Facebook uh, and email. If you want to email me or email the show, which is also me. <laughs> You could do it at judochopsuishow at gmail.com. You could always follow me on Instagram at judoka. My Instagram is awesome. You can also follow me on Twitter at judoka, And you could also follow me on the Facebook page for the Judo Chop Suey podcast, which um, I, I rarely actually use it other than to announce when I'm releasing new episodes. But uh, you can always go there and, and leave a comment. Or you could just hunt me down on Facebook um, and you could add me as a friend. But if you do that, please uh, at least mention to me, shoot me a message saying that you listen to the podcast because I don't accept friend requests from people that do not have mutual friends or are not podcast listeners. Sometimes, you know, I get these these Russian women asking me if I can be their friend and and uh, I, I, I have to reject them. All right, I think I've blabbed along, uh, blabbed quite long enough. Gosh, I think I'm about almost a half hour in before I've even managed to bring in Steve. I'm sure most of you are like, get on with the interview already. God. All right. Without any further delay, Mr. Steve Scott. Welcome back. Steve, welcome back to the Judo Chop Suey podcast. How you doing today? I am doing well, Dave. Thank you for having me again. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. I, I We were talking about this off air that uh, this is the third time you've been on. And, and con- coincidentally, it seems like every time I bring you on, it's always in, in March, right before spring starts. So, you know, so I, I appreciate you making the time again. 
I'm glad to be here. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, the, the snow has melted and this is a nice March. The spring is on its way. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a better mood. <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that. In Florida, it's always it's always in the 80s. So I can never complain. Yeah, life must really stink down there, you poor man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Steve, tell me uh, what's been going on with you. The last time I saw you in person was at JudoCon, and and of course, you know, I've been following your your um, your your Facebook pages and certainly your YouTube channel. And and not only that, you've got a new book, which is the main reason why I brought you back onto the podcast. But let, just let's uh, catch up the listeners and let them know what's been going on with you, and if you could. Maybe give some parting thoughts on JudoCon, how you felt about it. Okay, well, we, you know, we've been busy since uh, November. The last I saw you, uh, we got. Uh, I guess we were talking about earlier. The book is wrapped up; it's now uh, on the market. So we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but, but uh, you know, here at Welcome at in Kansas City, uh, we really have two locations. Uh, Kenny Brink. Uh, has a huge uh, kids program uh, in, at one of the facilities, and then Derek Darling has a, a more, he also has judo, but he also has sambo and jujitsu as well, and some MMA at another facility. So we've been really busy with those two gyms, and you, you were at Derek's gym, you know, when, at, at JudoCon. So, yes, yes. so that that's that's a, a going you know project and doing well. Um, and the the uh, the YouTube page, the YouTube channel, I should say, is really growing. We've got over 14,000 subscribers. And, uh, uh, you know, for anyone listening, it's welcome, Matt, Steve Scott. We love to have more subscribers, totally free. Uh, and we've been really busy cranking out the videos um, in in some uh, gym photo, dojo photo shoots or, you know, uh, video shoots. So we've got a lot of new content up there. And we're, um, we actually listen to people when, when they when they say, we'd like to see this, we'd like to see this, or, or you know, a particular video on something, both on our Facebook um, platforms as well as when they come to our YouTube channel, uh, we listen to them and want to try to uh, pro provide those type of videos. So uh, it is, you know, uh, viewer driven and in, in what we provide in, in many ways. So it's, it's and that's a lot of fun because it keeps me on my toes. It really does. So uh, but uh, but, you know, and then we wrapped up JudoCon and it was a successful one. We had, uh, gosh, I think we had over 60 people from I can't remember how many states now, at least 10 different states. Um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, like, you know, a whole bunch from every state, but it was, it was a good, good mix of people. Um, and we, we, you know, the idea of JudoCon, uh, which by the way, I want to give every bit of credit to Scott Decker, who in 2014 hosted the very first, you know, judo conference. Right. And, right. And, and my wife, my wife chimed the name JudoCon. Judo conference makes sense. Yeah. The JudoCon. And so I want to give Scott all that was out in Fe the Phoenix area. And we didn't have one until um, last year. Again, we just got, got it together. We want to do it right. And we did. So, you know, we had a lot of number of speakers there. You attended. Uh, we had some rank testing. Uh, it was just a great event. Uh, we, we saw where we made some mistakes and uh, we wanted to correct them. And now this next year, at least this year in 2019, uh, Anne Maria DeMars is going to be hosting it in uh, Los Angeles, uh, November 1st and 2nd. And she's a great organizer, by the way. I mean, she's you know she's a very successful businesswoman, and so um, she's got things pretty well lined up in L.A. for November 1st and 2nd of this year. So, and in fact, as I just talked to her um, about two days ago, and you know, just a planning type conversation, she called. And she's really, um, we, we talked about the good stuff and the bad stuff that happened at JudoCon this past year. Well, and I thought it was all good. 
I, I appreciate that. You know, there were some 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 things we wanted to you know make better actually, and I think she's really on on track for doing that. So we're we're gonna have James Wall back to do a, a very you know he did a great by the way he did a great uh, session on uh, do, dojo management running a commercial judo club and I know you've had him on your show this that's right yeah show and uh, he'll he'll be back we're we're doing a thing with him again in uh, November at JudoCon. Uh, we're having some other things. Uh, you know, of course, Anne Marie will be there. I'll be there. My wife, Becky, will be there. So we'll have some of the same presenters, but we're going to draw on some of the local talent from Los Angeles that's going to be there. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to a lot of those folks to, to work with them. So um, anyway, that's that's kind of what we've been doing, uh, planning for this year. And of course, we've got the um, our AAU national tournaments coming up. We have the uh, junior nationals uh, coming up uh, May 4th in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we're having our seniors and masters nationals uh, June 8th in uh, Dallas, Texas. And we have information that, on that on all our, our, our YouTube, uh, or our, I should say our uh, Facebook uh, platforms, uh, if anybody wants to go and, and get information about that. So, uh, you know, we've been busy. We've been busy. And that's, uh, that's you know, at my age, uh, you know, I'm retired from my job and this, this keeps me out of trouble. I really enjoy doing it. <laughs> That that's great, Steve. Now I want to I want you to talk a little bit about your freestyle judo show that you have on YouTube because I know many of the listeners are familiar with the technique videos that you you seemingly pump out mm -hmm. um, on a regular basis. Now, now, by the way, before we get into the freestyle judo show, I'm curious to know: Do you have a library of videos that you've collected over the years and then you publish them or is this stuff that you are constantly recording and uploading? Well, actually a little bit of both. What uh, we, we started doing videos uh, and it's kind of an issue. This might be kind of a funny story to start here. Um, at 2010 or 2011, Mike Pennington, one of my good black belts, he's in a lot of my videos, right. uh, brought, he came to, came to practice once and he said, uh, he said, Hey coach, he said, you know, we really should video this stuff because it's it's great. You know, I you know I, I'd like to you know co go back on it and review this again, and other people should see this. It's really great stuff. I said, oh yeah, right, right. He said, no, no, really, I mean it. I said, sure. You know, and okay. So a couple practices later, he shows up with a little bloggy camera, and uh, you know, one of those little small, inexpensive video yep. cameras. And I had and he one. Said, oh, yeah, well, I did too. He, Mike yep. gave it. To me. He said, here's how it works. And I was dumb as a rock on this stuff. I really was. Still, pretty much am. But um, he he said, "Show me how to use it." And he said, "Let's just video our drills and anything." He said, "I'll I'll take the videos. You just coach, you know." And we started doing that, and they were real, pretty rough end, you know, stuff at the time. Um, and then as I I said, "Oh, this is kind of fun." Mike's right. You know, we can make a difference. We can get coaching out and more people can see some of this stuff. Not that I have all the answers, but I do have some of the answers. And uh, so as time went on, we started to video more and more of our practices. And we got to the point where uh, now we have like several cameras. And I actually went out and bought a really nice Sony camera that, you know, not super expensive, but expensive enough, uh, a video camera for just doing this type of work. And so we usually have a couple of cameras going at just about a lot of our practices. So the last probably five to seven years, we've just done video of just the workout. So what, what I have is this collection of a lot of video uh, that I that I've go ahead and you know, kept here on, you know, flash drives, et cetera. And um, so I'll, I'll draw on that a lot of times 
uh, to, to, you know, to, to come back with some good technique. And as I'm learning more about editing and stuff like that, it's become a bit of a hobby now before me. Um, so I'm learning more how to edit and do it a little bit better on some software that I've got. Uh, it's uh, it's been kind of fun. So yes, we and and now we do continue to video our current you know uh, workouts as they were practices, um, and so I try to intersp inter intersperse those with some of the older stuff. So like if somebody's watching the um, uh, you know the YouTube channel, they'll see us in in one of the dojos and they'll see us in another dojo. You know because they were actually videotaped and were videoed in different times. So that's right. why. It's like we're jumping around different places, but it's just over a period of time. So, yeah, we've done a little bit of both. And, yeah, I do have a massive number of videos. And, and it's, the cool thing about YouTube is that uh, they let you, you know, do your video and you can download it on your channel and then uh, schedule it for a later play date. And so we have videos queued up, um, averaging about 16 videos a month from now up through the end of 2020. I've got, wow. I think I've wrapped up all of December of 2020. So we have at least 16 videos a month, every month up through December of 2020, ready to go. So, and it's, it's new material. It's, it's, you know, um, in, and a lot of times some of the older material, I'll come back and we'll revisit it and I'll re-edit it and we'll get something different out of that video shot. It'll be kind of a same subject, but a little more expanded on it just because I know how to edit better these days. So sure. that's inside baseball for everybody. But but anyway, so, you know, keep watching the uh, YouTube channel because there's going to be a lot more content coming up. And uh, and again, that's that December 2020 date. As we keep making more new videos, we're going to keep extending more time out, you know, as far as, far as we can. And, and you know, it, I don't know how long I'll be able to physically do this. But as long as I have some young, tough guys like Derek and and Eric Weaver and, you know, guys who are on the mat constantly doing the techniques, I can I can talk all day long and coach and they can do all the great techniques they do. And we can keep doing this for a while. So uh, anyway, that, that's kind of the, the plan. And that's what's going on, you know, with what's been going on with our YouTube channel. And, uh, and thank you for mentioning it. I really appreciate it. You have recently authored a book called The Judo Advantage, Controlling Movement with Modern kinesiology. Now, I have not uh, finished reading this book yet. I've just started it. It downloaded on my Kindle just just uh, a couple of days ago and and I told you last year, you told you you told us last year that you were going you were in the process of writing this book and you finally finished it and I I said to you then that I'm going to have you on uh as soon as the book is finished so you can talk about it uh because I'm really excited to to really deep dive into this book. So if you would tell the audience, what was your motivations for writing this book? And I know you have authored several books in the past. I'm not quite sure how many. I, I, I think at certainly at least uh, maybe close to 10, maybe more. I'm not quite sure. Maybe you can answer that. But what was your motivations for writing this book? Well, uh, this was my 19th book, 19th, 19th okay. book yeah, on a variety of subjects in, uh, relating to the martial arts. Um, and, and coaching is near and dear to me. And of course, I love judo. Um, but, you know, years ago, when I started coaching as a very young man, uh, there were very few good references, like like one go to book, one go to book that would uh, help help any coach or any advanced student, any serious student of judo, whether he was a young coach, old coach or just an athlete wanting to learn more about why judo works. But I wanted to in one single volume why and how judo works 
you know, and, and it could be done. I think I did it in this one. Um, and you don't have to, uh, you know, have a lot of educational ease to do it. You can write it in a way, if you work on it hard enough, you can write it in a way that makes it understandable. And I'm not saying dumbing down by any stretch, don't get me wrong, but it's understandable for the general public, but it's also um, interesting enough for anyone who is serious about it, uh, that they will, you know, that they'll learn why and how judo works. And, and another aspect that I, that I really think is important is how to tie in, you know, the biomechanics of judo, you know, the modern science, empirical evidence of why judo works with time honored tradition of how we've taught judo for many years. And, and because the, a lot of people say, well, this is the new judo. This is the modern judo. We, we forget what those old guys did. That's that's the past. Well, I disagree with that because, first of all, Jigoro Kano, the founder of judo, was a genius, a, a man that really did, did much to change the world in, in, with his judo. And he, he, he laid a lot of foundations for judo that people don't realize. And it's, it's very important things. Just. Let's take, for example, and, and well, real quick, I wanted to tie these traditions of judo, the, how we've traditionally been teaching it, and, and show how it makes a lot of sense in, in modern scientific approaches to, to doing movement. So like Kano, an example, one of the brilliant things he did that we, that we all take for granted was how we actually grip, grip each other, the kumikata, the actual meeting together to grab a hold of each other and, and basically a, a lapel and sleeve technique. Now, he invented how to do that in somewhere in the, in the very early 1880s when he was just starting the Kodakon because he saw there was no mutually agreeable way to hold on to each other to be able to exchange techniques, to just practice. So he invented a way to actually hold on to each other. Now, we take that for granted, but it's, it, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. It's, you know, in its execution and, and way we do it. And, and to that, he also invented the modern judo gi, the uniform. You know, how he, he, he really fashioned it to where we have it today. He lengthened the, the sleeves to down the, 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 the wrists, you know, the knees, you know, the pants down to the ankles. He invented, you know, how the, the sturdy belt we use. He invented all that. And, and he, he, it's an interesting thing about how he invented the judo gi and and he like the lapels we grip that they're they're sturdy. Well, right. he did that so we could grip better for number one, get a better grip in kumikata. And he also did it because he really enjoyed lapel strangles. His Shimei Waza was he really was very quite good at lapel strangles, and that was a hallmark of the early days of Kodokan Judo. They did a lot of lapel strangles, so he made the lapels nice and big so you could use them to strangle an opponent with. And those are cool little things that Kano did that I thought was brilliant. And because, you know, it, frankly, it is brilliant what he did. And many of the other advances, the concept of Kazushi, he invented that. He invented Kazushi, the, the breaking of the balance. And so I wanted to have a book where we could tie in a lot of these great things in judo that we've been teaching for years and, and, and show that how they work from a biomechanic point of view, of the kinesiology, of the, kinesiology is the study of human movement. And what better thing to study human movement than judo? And I wanted to write a book about why and how that should be done, why and how that works. And, and this is a good reference guide, I really believe, for any serious student, but certainly for coaches, that they can come back and they can say, well, I'm, I'm having trouble, you know, if my student learning, you know, his entry is, is you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe a, a particular technique. Maybe I can hear some answers in this book I can find. 
and and you right. uh, can use this as a reference. So that's why it, it, you know it's it's a it's a one stop shopping. Um, you know it's 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 all in one book. I think uh, again, not all the answers, but I tried to cover a variety of different topics. A good example. Um, what I think it's chapter eight off the top of my head. Um, I, I talk about Surikomi, the action of yes, Surikomi. Yes, it is chapter eight. Yeah. So so um, that action of the lifting pulling action. Again, guess who invented that? Kano, and and you know he developed that. As of course his students later developed it, where it's a fine art, literally in a science. But um, the the concept of Surikomi, we use it all the time. Well, I've never seen a book anywhere written that breaks down and analyzes what the movement, the action of Surikomi is. Well, I wanted to write something about that. And there, you know, there it is. It's, it's there. And so a coach can go in there and look and say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is in, in biomechanically, it's all backed up by good science and facts. But, but again, we go on the basis of what we've been learning for years has been really quite efficient. And I kind of wanted to prove that. I kind of wanted to prove Kano right. Uh, in a in a biomechanical modern way, because you know some people will say you know it's that old fashioned stuff doesn't work. You're a traditionalist or this or that. Honestly, um, yeah, you, you know, Kano was a genius, and I wanted to give him credit for the great invention he he gave us was judo. And uh, so another another thing I also wanted to point out in the book, uh, and I hope everybody buys one so I can get rich and famous. But but just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I would like everyone if you do buy the book and read it. Please read the introduction carefully, because um, being a bibliophile that I am, I love books. I always make it a point to read the author's introduction. He, he sets the table for what he's going to tell you in the rest of the book, and I'm no different. So read that introduction, and you'll see uh, I'll make a very good, very good case why we should continue and always use the Japanese terminology for judo, because it's one of the international language of judo. But we use Japanese in the same way that a, a doctor or a lawyer would would use Latin. It's, right. a, it's a precise general language, the generic language we use. And we have when we have to finalize an answer, if, if you're a lawyer, you'll, you'll go to the law books and it'll be in Latin. Well, same with judo. If you can look at the concept of kazushi, what is it? Well, Kano gives you the answer because he, he's, he's invented a word for it. Kano was brilliant. Another thing he did was invent things or uh, invent words and phrases that describe a technique. And we kind of take that for granted in all phases of life. But in the, in consider this, in, in the 1800s, in, in the, the feudal jujitsu of Japan, that wasn't done in any of their martial arts. They had flowery names. They had, you know, this, you know, named after someone else or whatever. Uh, but Kano, being the educator that he was, very pragmatic guy, he said, no, we need to name things for what they based on their, their concept, their principles, and based on their function. Now, not all techniques, you know, so, some things like Tani Otoshi, Valley Drop. Okay, so some are retain some of their old jujitsu names, but almost probably the, 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 the vast majority of all things we, you know, the concepts, the, the, the Japanese te te you know, terminology we use is based on rational thought. And generally it's from Kano. So uh, we just added that. And I wanted to point that out in this book because I think it's important that people do learn the Japanese terminology. Um, and you don't have to speak Japanese fluently. I certainly don't. But I always say I don't speak Japanese, but I can speak judo. And, right. And so I think that's, you know, I wanted to bring that out in the book, too, that, that you know, definitively, 
we should use that and, and, and make it a point of doing that. And so I tried to tie the, the traditional aspect of, of teaching judo with a modern empirical approach. And I hopefully I did a good enough job that people want to buy it and, 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 and use it as a reference material for many years to come. I really, really hope so. So that's why I wrote the book. And it's, it's just kind of a good overview of what the book's about, actually. And, you know, I agree. I, I do agree with you on on using the the Japanese names for the techniques, because, as you said, you, you use the example of Tani Otoshi. Well, anytime I hear of a of a technique that uses the word Otoshi, I think of of uh, body dropping some kind of a some kind of a drop type throw. So to your point, I, I think it's very important to use use that terminology because I, I, I remember about a couple of weeks ago, I was on a, 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 an online judo discussion forum and this person, he was a beginner, uh, but he was describing this throw, uh, that he was doing. It ended up being Tayatoshi, okay. but he was describing this throw. And he told, he told us that his instructor called it the banana split throw. <laughs> and like, but you know, it, it, that I, and I explained to him basically what you were saying about the, the meaning of the words, the, uh, you know, the names of the throws having meanings that, 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 that kind of description is completely meaningless to, to communicate what the throw is doing. Correct. Uh, yeah. You know, but, but, but using the Japanese terminology, even, even if you're, you know, because because I'm doing primarily judo now out of out of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club where we we have uh, you know a couple of classes a week in judo, and even though you know even though people that do Brazilian jiu-jitsu tend to be laid back, I think it's still important to communicate mm -hmm. you know the, the the Japanese names of the throw and what that throw means uh, because yeah. th there has to be meaning in what you're doing unless. Or, or or else it it you don't really you can't I don't think you can. To develop a, a good understanding on how to throw works if you don't understand what it means. Exactly right. You know, and and, and another point to that is uh, judo, the Japanese is the international language of judo. And um, one time many years ago, I was in Sweden doing a training camp with part of a U.S. program over there. And we were attending a Swedish training camp. And so, you know, I was coaching, of all things, I was coaching Tayotoshi, showing how to do Tayotoshi. And when I said initially, you know, when we started, you know, in English, because I don't speak a word of Swedish, I said, we're going to do Tayotoshi. Well, guess what? Everybody knew Tayotoshi was going to be taught because they all understood Tayotoshi. And we got along fine. I mean, I, I made my points and everybody got the idea of how to do Tayotoshi because that was the generic language of judo. Japanese. And I think every, you know, the nomenclature needs to be link us together with the rest of the world. And you, you make a good point about the banana split throw. Uh, but it's interesting. Um, um, I had a, not an argument, but shall we say a serious discussion with a coach some years ago, who was a modern up, upbeat coach. He knew all the latest cool stuff. And he was telling me he was really getting on to me about using all this Japanese. And he was surprised. I was I was such an innovative guy and blah, blah, blah. And and, uh, and I, I'm surprised you're such an old traditionalist using an old Japanese. And I, I made my point. And he said, well, he said, I just call. And he, he talked about Tomoanagi. He called it the uh, the monkey flip throw. And and so I my, my argument, my counter argument was I said, well, <clears throat> I said, Monkeys can flip around a lot of different directions, can't they? Yeah. You know, I mean, just, to, you know, honestly. And exactly. I said, you know, and I, I said, you know, I don't, 
I can't envision a monkey. I, I envision a monkey flipping the other way. And of course, I kept doing that to make it matter, which it did work actually, by the way. <laughs> but nonetheless, my point was, you know, there was no common language. A, a monkey flip, you know, might mean something totally different to somebody else because there's no there's no commonality about that, you know. And uh, and how do you say monkey flip in Swedish? I don't know. You know, right. so I couldn't have possibly taught that to the Swedish group. So, so that's uh, yeah. I, I think I think the the common language of judo is the Japanese, and, and I th I think it's important to to do that. Uh, and you know, and I, I get this. <clears throat> my very first sensei, Jerry Sweat, God rest his soul. He was a wonderful man, and um, he was a very strict uh, nidan from the Kodokan. He was now he did speak Japanese fluently, and uh, so he made sure when I started judo at the age of twelve. Um, he made he we sat down we he didn't make it you know like boring or anything he made it interesting and so we learned the japanese words and i got this concept of, of knowing this japanese from jerry uh he said he said kids he said this is if you go to japan and you say serenagi they'll understand you if you go to france it, and he made that point and it made a lot of sense and so i i give jerry jerry sweat full credit for guiding me in the right direction and I'm so glad he did and I think it's uh, I think it's important and and you know my own students you know again they don't have to speak volumes of Japanese but they do have to know the nomenclature that I think is important so they can go anywhere in the world and have a good conversation about judo and have an intelligent conversation about judo and um, with somebody else who's equally as intelligent so I think that that commonality of language enables us to do that so so Steve um when did you start thinking about in in your own personal life the 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 movement of judo because it, I, I would have to believe that there was a maybe a moment in time a, a a genesis of sorts where you started thinking about judo in the way that you are expressing in in your your book here the judo advantage I'm curious because when you're young, when you're a kid, obviously you're just doing what the sensei says. And mm -hmm. when you're, you're in a, a young adult athlete, you're just training to, to, to be the best judoka competitor that you can be. But I'm curious to know, when did you in your life start thinking about judo in more deeper terms, in terms, in this way that you are expressing in your latest book here? Well, that's a good question, Dave. I, I, I think uh, one of the things that I was when I was coming up as a young athlete, I started at 12 in 1965 at the age of 12. By the way, there were a lot of people doing judo back then. And, and uh, so, again, I did what Sensei taught me and, and all the movements and all that. And I always considered myself a good athlete, but not a great athlete. And because of that, from the time I was pretty much a kid. I think again, by, uh, again, with Jerry sweats, you know, guiding on this, um, I had to figure out how to do things a little better for me because I wasn't, you know, I was a big kind of thick kid and I wasn't necessarily well coordinated and I had to figure out a, a not a cheat way to do it, but a better way to do it for me. And, and I kind of went on this along, along the line, but eventually I ran into a guy named Morris Allen. And uh, he was a Scotsman, and he was over here in 1976. And when I I got I got interested in Sambo uh, in 1975 or so, and uh, you know, I was 
steered toward Morris Allen because Morris was the world Sambo champion. He was also a world-class judo man, a world-class, I think, uh, freestyle wrestler. And he was hired by an old millionaire and of all places, um, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, or Rogers, Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, near Fayetteville. And they had a beautiful dojo called Ichiban. And this gentleman named Robertson. And he he would hire instructors and keep them about a year or two. And then they'd go on and, you know, he'd help them get their citizenship or whatever. I don't know how it worked exactly. But Morris Allen was over here teaching judo just about a, a, about a four-hour drive south of where I am. And, and I was directed to find Morris Allen if I wanted to learn about Sambo. Well, it turned out he was also tremendously talented in judo. And so the first time I went down there, uh, I was about, you know, six foot, three and a half, four inches tall and weighed about 225 pounds, good sized fella. And he was about six, two and about 185 or 190. And he tore me from limb to limb. I mean, this guy was one of the best judo men I ever touched in my life and in Sambo too. And he was very nice about it. He just didn't get me beat me up. And he said, you have potential. I'll, you know, I'll train you if you keep coming down. I'll, I'll, I'll train you and help you out. I said, wonderful. And we had this relationship for some time until he moved on. I think he ended up moving on to Virginia, where he's still in Virginia now. But he was the first to tell me something which literally changed me. And in the very first meeting in 1976, uh, he said, he said, he called me Stevie. He said, Stevie. He said, you're doing judo like you're five foot ten. He said, you're six foot four. He said, why are you trying to do judo like a short man? I said, well, that's the way I've always learned it. He said, he said, no, make your judo work for you. He said, make the technique work for you. And so we talked about that. And he, that was the genesis right there. The, the light went off, the light bulb went off over the head at that point. And I said, yeah, I've got to make this work for me. So I'm, I'm a big, tall dude. Uh, how can I make any technique work for me more efficiently? Because of my height, and now that I loved coaching, how can I, how can I make this work better for my students? So, how can we get you know develop this technique, teach them the basics, yes, but let's mold that technique to fit them like a, you know, a, a good suit or, or mold it like a glove so it fits the hand perfectly, and and that's that got me on that road that that working with Morris Allen in 1976 um, changed it. It, that was that was the, the big moment up to that point I've, I was leading up to that I was very open to it I was groping around trying to figure out how to do the best way for myself uh, and then I, I met this guy and he he really changed me so all the credit in the world goes to Morris Allen and uh, if anybody in the Virginia area I mean find that guy he is a master of judo and he's one heck of a nice man too by the way so uh, I, I want to give that, that that was it that was the moment and after that it was just refining it more. And then also another Brit, or, uh, you know, of course, he was a British man. It, it wasn't Scottish. Um, I met up with Neil Adams uh, when I was, at some point, it was an international training camp I was attending as, as a coach. And um, Neil Adams was there. As, I think he just recently retired from competition. And he was there as a coach as well. So I can't remember exactly where I first met him. Uh, but we struck up a bit of a friendship. And he... he Offered me, he said, anytime you want to come and train with me in Coventry, where he had his dojo at the time, he's from Coventry in, in England. He said, uh, come on over. I said, I'll take you up on that someday. And I did. And uh, some years later, I went back and I, I, my wife and I and a number of friends of mine, uh, we all went over there and stayed uh, just a couple of weeks or so and trained every day with Neil Adams. And he was very logical in his, his approach to judo. 
just like Morris Allen was, and and very pragmatic. And um, again, he had the attitude of make it work for you. You know, you do good, solid, skillful technique, yes, but mold that technique where it fits your body. And uh, and I I was always really hooked on Juji Gatami anyway. I love the arm lock Juji Gatami. And when I went over there and trained with him, it was like uh, Juji Gatami heaven. I mean, this guy huh. really. Oh God, he. He was tremendous at it. And he was the one that really developed me and or really guided me in the direction of some of the thoughts later that I developed when I started working on teaching Juji Gatami more logically. And when I, by the way, my, my the next book coming out in May is Juji Gatami Encyclopedia. It's a reprint over the old book and it's coming out again with YMAA publications. By the way, real quick. Oh, wonderful. YMAA is just a tremendous company to work with. The publications, they're very professional. David Ripianzi, the the editor and or the the publisher and owner, has been nothing but good to me. He's a tremendous guy. So we're we're, we're coming out with Jujigatami Encyclopedia again. But a lot of that you see in there, um, I want to give credit to, to to one to Neil Adams for one. Now there was a lot of original thought, a lot of thought I picked up in Sambo as well. Uh, you know the the, the 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 Soviets in Sambo were masters of Jujigatami. So I, I stole a lot of their ideas and, and, and incorporated them and kind of refined them a little more for, you know, for for uh, for, for how we Americans think, or, you know, and, and from a judo sense. But nonetheless, these were the guys and other people as well. But these were the people that really influenced me to make things, try to make things as logical and pragmatic as I can in in the teaching and explaining of how to do judo. So this book, The Judo Advantage, is really, an, an, you know, an outgrowth of that, of how to logically think about how and why judo works and and so this you know and again i give people like morris allen neil adams uh and a lot of other people a lot of a lot of coaches here in the united states credit for that as well uh, but um that was the moment working with morris allen that was the light bulb going off on, on the big thick head that i have but uh it was sure worth spending the time working with that man he was tremendous so now now let's uh let's springboard off of that Mm -hmm. Um, so you, from, from Morris Island, you learned how you, you started thinking about the, the kinesiology of judo and how judo works and making it work for you. Mm -hmm. How do you do that as a coach for your students and getting your students to understand how to make their judo work for them? Well, I, I use what I call sequential teaching. Maybe somebody else calls it that as well. I don't know. I don't know if it, it's even a proper phrase. But for years, years ago, I developed the concept of teaching in layers. And, and it's like you're adding layers to something. Okay, so here you, you provide a basis. You know, here's the basic, you know, core. So here's how to do Osotogari. Basic way of doing Osotogari, the generic way. Here's the technique, guys. Here's how we do it. Boom. And, you know, teach it properly, teach the good, skillful technique. And then as they continue, as they gain mastery of that skill, as they get better, I don't mean to say they're judo masters already, but they will start mastering the skill as they progress in that mastery, add layers to it, add more to that technique. Okay. So a good example, teach Osotogari. I teach it in a stationary way, probably the way most people learn it, break the balance, step in, you know, reap the leg, take them down, throw them from a stationary position. Okay, they get that. Okay, we, you know, we start with a good kumikata. We do all the kazushi sukuri kata, all that. Then I'll say, okay, guys, you're getting good now. Let's do this moving. So we then we do a very straight line movement drill, and we'll move them right into it. 
and they'll start getting it where it's moving. It may take a, a period of you know several weeks to get this skill down, but each time they come into the gym or the dojo, each time I want to make sure what however we've added another layer to that technique that they get it and they have some success with it and they want to come back for more and you just keep adding layers and that's that's worked for me brilliantly actually um and and i i think that's one of the things in when people teach judo we we tend to expect people to do things automatically you know you know you know great expectations the very first time well you know, he's a beginner you know, and he's going to learn it and it's going to take time to learn that. And so we'll come back and we'll revisit. And another thing I used quite a bit is drill training. You know, I try to invent drills for every phase of movement in judo. Uh, you know, just watch a judo match and you can see how many, anything, anything that happens in a judo match, you can make a drill for. So what I'll do is with, I'll, I'll try to have a lot of interesting drills where they don't do the same old stuff all the time. They'll, they'll be doing the same old stuff, but it'll fool them. They don't realize it because it's a different drill. It's a different type of movement. It's more fun to do. And you kind of you kind of keep working at it over a period of time. And it's a it's an accretion. You know, it's a, a lot like Kenny Brink, you know, one of my great students who's now a great coach, said, he says, he says it's kind of coaching by osmosis. And I think yeah, that's a good way to put right. it. You know? And so that's how we do it. it. It's just it takes some time to develop that skill. And um you know, it, patience is a virtue in learning, and sp especially in judo. But but it's amazing if you present things logically to a, a beginner, a raw beginner, um, they they will pick that up pretty quick if it makes sense to them. You know, if you if you say this is some mystical movement done by some monk in some you know uh, you know cabin in the, in the in the mountains, he may not relate to that. But if you can relate it to him in a way that he'll it'll make sense to him. You know, if you step in and you'd step in there and make sure and you hook his leg like this and take him down and, oh, that makes sense to me, coach. Thank you. And, you know, relate to them. And it's just it's just good teaching. And I think when, in, in the book, by the way, I, I talk about that. I talk about how to literally start from point A and end up hopefully to point Z and them doing it brilliantly. You know, we hope. But uh, but that's that is mentioned in the book, you know, how we how we do that. Teach by sequential learning is what I call it anyway. When you when you teach a technique, um, and you're teaching the, the the various movements, and you're teaching the different, you you talk about the drills and such, in at your club at Welcome Mat, do you dedicate maybe a couple of weeks or or even a month on just Osotogari, or do you maybe teach one thing and then maybe you revisit it several weeks later? I'm just curious. Well well, well, yeah, that, that's a good point because what we'll do, we'll, we'll come back. I'll introduce a move. Let's say Osotogari. It's a good example. And then we'll, we'll do that as a primary movement that night, okay, or that practice. And then we'll do other things, too, to keep it interesting. You know, we'll do some Nawaza. We'll do this or that, you know, whatever it may be. But we always come back and drill on that again. Then <clears throat> the next practice they come in, we will do Osotogari again. We'll, we'll not do it the same way we did the other night. We'll do it a little bit differently. And they're still doing Osotogari, but they're doing it in a more interesting way. It's a different drill. And that's how I do it. And, and we'll, we'll go through that for a period of time, uh, you know, until I, I say, okay, they're good. But I, while it's maybe that second or third time they come and do the Osotogari, I'll say, okay, guys, guess what? What's the best counter for Osotogari? Another Osotogari. So we'll work on that to keep their interest up. And they've learned to counter to the Osotogari. So 
you can just keep adding more to that, like I said, adding more layers. And then uh, eventually they're going to be pretty good at Osotogari. And then say, okay, I've got, okay, the next thing on the lesson plan is this. And then we'll add something to that. And, and uh, or we could say, a good way, I'll, I'll keep them on Osotogari. We'll say, okay, well, what's a good transition from Osotogari to the ground? What What's a good, what from that throw? And I'll say, well, you know, I'll have something in mind for them. I'll, I'll lead them in that direction. I'll say, well, let's go right to o Kesigatami. How about that? And then we'll throw Osotogari and I'll have them, you know, go Makakomi or whatever, follow through and then get right to Kesigatami as a transition. So it keeps them interested. But but then when they, after a while, they're Osotogari'd out. You know, then you're going to have to say, okay, let's try another throw to keep their interest. And that's how I've always done it. Um, and it works both for, for kids and adults in a very similar way. Um, adults pick up skills a lot more quickly than children. We all know that. But so, uh, you know, if it's primarily a kid's class, and I do try to keep the kids and adults separated. I don't, I don't mix yeah. the some, some coaches have to. I totally understand it. But I always kept them pretty separate. I always had the teens, the older teens and adults together, and I always kept the younger kids separate. And we generally had a different lesson plan, actually, in both classes. But, but the adults will learn at a faster pace. So you can introduce more more techniques to them in a, in a while. And a lot of the videos you see me do now on our YouTube channel, I coach a lot of adults anymore. I don't coach a lot of kids. Uh, so you'll see them go at a, at a, a quicker clip and learning a skill um you know like we can do okuri ashibrai you know the sliding sin after foot sweep um they'll pick a, an adult even a novice adult will pick that technique up rather quickly in, in one in one workout in, in one in one session at the dojo and then right. we'll keep right. adding layers to it so yeah yeah that's that's kind of how we do it uh, it seemed to work for me for a lot of years i've been doing this uh, uh effect um, uh next year well later this year later this year in 2019 uh, we will be celebrating our, our my dojo's 50th anniversary. Uh, I was wow. a 17-year-old punk kid, had no clue what I was doing when my, my then coach, Ken Regadator, who was also a wonderful man, God rest his soul, a great guy, um, he, he loaned me a small 10 by 10 mat, and we put it out at the community center where I ended up working part of my career in public recreation. And uh, at 17 years of age, that's how we started the judo club. And I had no idea... Uh, that we were actually going to be having a club there for that long of a time, and, and we did. So uh, it's it, it mushroom. So what, whether I like it or not, I wasn't a very good coach, I could tell you. I was quite a poor coach at the age of 17. I was still a kid. But um, I, uh, I that's when I guess I started coaching at the age of 17. Um, you know, I was almost 18. And um, we uh, – so it'll be 50 years coaching. So it kind of makes me feel old. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, the judo advantage is forwarded by two gentlemen, uh, Jim Bregman and Bruce Toops. Now, I am far more familiar with with Jim Bregman. I think anybody who is who is doing judo in the United States knows that he's he's one of the very few uh, judon rank holders in in American judo history. Um, you probably had a reason to have these two gentlemen. Uh, do the forward in your book. Why? Why is that? T tell us a, a little bit about each gentleman. Maybe what they what they mean to you and what they've meant to your uh, judo uh, career. Well, we'll start with Jim. Uh, Jim, as you well said, is is uh, one of the greats of American judo of all time, and he's a highly respected man. Not just for his judo, he's just a decent human being. And um, uh, when I was a young man, I'd attend camps and. Uh, 
you know, there was Jim Bregman coaching at him, or he'd be at a, a seminar in the early days of the USJA. I was, I was a member as well. <clears throat> he, he was one of the early uh, presidents of USJA and backers of it. And we'd go to his seminars or a training camp or something, and something he was appearing in. He was always such a nice, gracious man. And there he was, he was, you know, about a foot shorter than me. And, and uh, but, and I'm not saying that to, you know, diminish him in any way, because, you know, a guy like me had no chance against a guy like that. I mean, that guy was tre tremendous. Um, his judo was so flawless. And he was always such a decent human being. Um, he's he, He's been a, a mentor to a lot of us who were younger coaches and, and younger men coming up in that era in the 70s and 80s, um, and 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, that um, – John Saylor is another good friend of mine who worked with him more closely than I did. And a lot of other guys, a lot of other athletes and then coaches. And Jim was just one of those literally legends. And I, I don't use that word lightly of American judo that made judo uh, the, the rock solid thing. It was for many years. He, he trained at the Kodokan. He was a, a Kinshusei, which was a special research student. Very, very rare to, to be that. I don't even think they've got that program anymore. And so he was one of the very few Americans who was a, in, in that program. And, and he has a, a wealth of knowledge and he was always so giving with it. And, uh, you know, he's come to John Saylor's training camp. And I, I do that every year, every year in Perrysville, Ohio, every May, which will be May 17th and 18th again this year, by the way, in Perrysville, Ohio. And uh, Jim has appeared there in the past and he's, he's just given all of himself to teaching. And, um, you know, like, like one of my students, Derek Darling, um, was coming up and and uh, he he said to Derek he said hey Derek you know he, Derek likes Uchimata of course Jim is a master of Uchimata and he said he said you know I'd like to work with you on Uchimata someday why don't you come to Washington D.C. and you know you can stay with me and train you blah blah and Derek did and and Jim took his time took out his time busy time to work with that guy um, Jim was pretty much retired from coaching but he saw talent in this young man. And he, he helped him. He, he just, you know, and he, he did so great. He didn't charge him a dime. He was just gracious. Right. And that's what the guy Jim Jim Bregman is. And I, I think a lot of people will say the same thing about, about him as I do. So that's one of the reasons. And I always looked up at him as being one of those really decent human beings in judo who was a great leader. And so he did the, um, uh, he did the uh, forward for my very first book, uh, which I look back and kind of cringe, but it was called Coaching on the Mat back many years ago. And Jim was gracious enough to do the forward for, for then and, and for that book. And I asked him to do it again for this one. And I, I sent him the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the manuscript, the early manuscript, he read it and he loved it. <clears throat> and he said, well, yeah, if I can, I said, please write it forward. And he said, absolutely. And he did. So, so that's, that's why he wrote the forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, it's just, uh, it meant a lot to me to get that from him. And, uh, and then also now with Bruce Toops. Right, right. Uh, Bruce Toops, um, I, I wanted Bruce because I, I deeply respect Bruce Toops. I think he's one of the great leaders, all-time leaders of American judo. And a lot of people now have never heard of Bruce Toops, and that's a shame because um, back in the very well, late 70s, early 80s, right about 1980, when uh, USJI, U.S. Judo Incorporated, which is now USA Judo, was first forming, uh, he was one of the rock solid foundation guys when it was forming. He was one of those guys there making those changes. Bruce is an expert at organization. He's also a master of judo. He's really, really brilliant at judo. And uh, so anyway, 
he he was one of those guys that formed U.S. Judo Incorporated, and I was a, a young coach and, and just coming out of my athletic career, and I was um, uh, I wanted to help, I wanted to be involved in the national scene, and um, he saw talent, a bit of talent in me, and he saw talent in other people too, and not just me, but a lot of other young guys like me, who were just wanting to come into the real serious coaching ranks, and uh, so he he took me under his wing, he really did, and this was about 1980, 81. And uh, so they started having, in those years, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Olympic Training Center uh, started in 78, I believe. They started to actually open the uh, Colorado Springs facility in 1978. And it wasn't long after that they started having judo there, uh, judo camps, judo training camps there. So when, when Bruce Toops came in as the director of development, he became the director of development of U.S. judo, a key figure in literally the director of development. He did that. And uh, so he started having training camps there at the Colorado Springs facility on a regular basis. And as a young coach in 1981 or so, um, you know, he, he and some other people identified me and some other guys too, to come in and, and help uh, with some training camps there, you know, and, and, and then there were some uh, women training camps. There were some junior training camps. There were some senior training camps for young guys coming up. And he wanted young coaches like me basically to be in the room to help him kind of like a college, um, uh, wrestling program. And, 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 you know, uh, you know, like somebody graduates from, from the program and they stick around three or four years as an assistant coach under the sure, head coach. like an internship of sorts. Yeah. Right. Right. And so that's, that's what we were doing. That's what he was having us do. And, He'd mentor us. He he would he would he would give us advice. He would, and the guy really knows judo. And he would he would say, well, try this, do this, blah blah blah. And it was all brilliant advice. And um, and as time went on, uh, he started giving me more assignments and, and giving me a little more responsibility and this and that. And so by by about nineteen oh gosh, eighty five, uh, he came to me. He said, well, he said, you know, again, he's the director of development for U.S. Judo. He said um, he said. I'd like you to put together uh, a, a coach education program uh, for, you know, just, just teaching guys like you how to coach more effectively. And he said, I know you, you know, you're young, you, you can learn more. And so um, I said, great, I would love to do that. So he, um, he picked me and he picked John Saylor to go out to, of course, John was at that time, the uh, training center coach, the Olympic U S Olympic training center, the head of the judo squad there. So we had John and I, attend the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee Coach Education Program, which was fabulous. And I don't know if they still do that, but it was certainly tremendous for me and for John Saylor. And so he had us go through that. And based on their work and a lot of other stuff that he had me do, a lot of other research, we developed the, the rudiments of the first coach education program in USJI, now USA Judo. And so I was the actually the architect of that based on the good work that Bruce gave me. And I, I he, he did so much for me. So uh, he was my mentor. And then later, after we got that rolling, it was starting to do, we were having coach education training camps. We were having this and that. It was, a, the program was growing. And he said to me, uh, sometime around 87, early, yeah, about 1987, he said, okay, he said, I want to really organize the junior program, the under 21 program. And he said, I want you to take that, responsibility. And I said, well, do this. He said, well, I want you to spend more time on the junior program. Okay, I will. And so, you know, we still did the coach education program, but we, we spent more time 
than in the juniors. And so we developed a, a, a system of having training camps for the kids out in Colorado Springs. Uh, he gave me a, a budget uh, to work with. And we had training camps in different parts of the country. You know, we had uh, uh, one in Minnesota here in Kansas City and different parts of the country in L.A. Uh, you know, we, uh, Frank Sanchez used to have a training camp for kids out there. And, um, you know, so, so we, and we've given some money to help help operate the camp to a small degree. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money. But sure. then he, he made available, it was through, for, through Bruce, that made available for us to get access to the different Olympic training centers in Colorado Springs, Lake Placid, New York. And back then it was in Marquette, Michigan. I know they still have an education center up there in Marquette, but um, then it was a full-blown training center with the uh, University of Northern Michigan, I think it was affiliated with. And so we would have training camps on a regular basis there, mainly through the summer when kids were out of school, but you know we'd have them at other times of the year as well. And he developed, and this was Bruce's brilliant idea of having a system of training camps where we would identify the, the athletes coming up. In fact, he was the guy that invented the point system for, for fairly identifying athletes for selection for world teams and international teams. Bruce, oh, okay. he was the man, he was the architect of that. And he had me develop a similar program for the juniors, the under 21 squad. And we, we didn't use like points. What we did was based on how well they did at the national events the USJA Nationals, USJF Nationals, and then we were we had our uh, USA USJI Nationals as well. Uh, <clears throat> we would have those based on how we did there, and also some other selected big tournaments. Um, we we had a, I had a, um, a letter rating. Uh, a, a double A was like a kid like Jimmy Pedro. You know, obviously he was a double A. Sure. Sonata. You know, just Olympic level material. You know, in the making, and we had an A, B, C, and D. And so based on that double A down to D classification, and that would change, that would be fluid. And I literally had a card file of hundreds and hundreds of kids' names here in Kansas City. This is before the internet, before computers. I had card files on all these kids. And Bruce and I were in constant contact with each other on, we need to send this kid there and there. And he would give me a budget to send kids um, to, like I mentioned Sweden earlier, uh, we we go there. They had a great high school age tournament uh, in Sweden, and um, one year in 1988, we sent uh, a dynamite team. I mean, we just cleaned up. I mean, we won. I think we sent eight or ten kids, and I think we came back with eight medals. And most wow. of them old. I mean, it was just tremendous. Jimmy Pedro was one of them. Clifton Sonata was another. Uh, Richard Lazat was another one. <clears throat> Greats in judo, and. Bruce Toops was the architect of all that. He got me involved and he he got young coaches like me integrated into the system and, and part of the development program. So um, he was a great mentor to me. And, and I, I always got a lot of good advice from Bruce over the years. And uh, we still have a, a good contact with each other. So when I started this project and, you know, I thought of, of course, Jim Bregman to write the forward. And of all the people I wanted, who I sincerely respect in this world, uh, Bruce Toops is another one. So I, I called him and I said, Bruce, I said, I got most of the manuscript done. I'd like to send it to you. Um, and by the way, Bruce was never shy about criticizing when it needed to be done. Um, of course, right, right. Yeah, he, he, he was good about it. And I said, I want your critique on this. So he did. He sent me back a very detailed critique. Do this, do that. And I followed his advice, by the way. 
it was a better book. Um, so anyway, and he did write up, he was very gracious to write the forward for it. So uh, he was the other guy I wanted to have on there. And, and I was so, so honored that he did. And uh, so a lot of people don't know about Bruce Toops, uh, but he was the director of de development from, um, I think, oh gosh, early sometime, don't know when in the early 80s, up through, I think, hmm, 1988. I think he retired from it to basically go back to his regular job. He was a, a very successful businessman and he he wanted to get back into normal life, basically, because he was spending so much time doing judo. And um, but in that during that period of time, during Bruce's tenure as director of development, we developed world champions, Anne Maria DeMars, Mike Swain, Jimmy Pedro come up. Um, gosh, you name any number of tremendous athletes in those years. And Bruce was <clears throat> heavily involved and directly involved in the development of these young people being world-class judo players. And uh, now some of them, of course, are great coaches like Jimmy Pedro and Swain, all those people, and Maria. Uh, but uh, it, Bruce was that guy. He was, he was the go-to man. And very little is known about him. And as a result, he gets very little credit for the great things he did. Well, uh, another good example, Kevin Asano um, and, and Lynn Rothke, uh, they came up, they were 88, uh, 1988 Olympic medalists, both silver medalists. They came out of that development program that Bruce Toops started. And uh, so, so, Steve, I, I, I want to springboard into a, uh, um, and we discussed this earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this is, I, I want to springboard based on what you're just talking about with Bruce Toops and, the comments that that I know you're aware of that the president of the International Judo Federation, uh, Mr. Marius Weiser, he he basically put USA Judo on blast. And everything that you're saying here, you know, I, I so let me back up a bit. It seems that Judo has his there's been peaks and valleys when it comes to uh, judo in the United States. And mm -hmm. you're talking about some of the peaks mm -hmm. and there's been another peak when, when it came to Ronda Rousey, uh, Nick Del Popolo, you know, seven years ago or so, uh, Travis Stevens and, and certainly Kayla Harrison. That was another peak of American judo. And now it seems that we're back at a, at a really a, a, a Valley again. And that's not a critique against the athletes. No, I agree. Um, and I think, given given what the the president of the International Judo Federation said about USA Judo, I, I'm curious to know, based on your experience with all the work that Bruce Toops has done, and and I know you're not on the inside anymore, but what do you think? What are you observing with the state of uh, American competitive judo? Um, in how it is today versus maybe how it was when you and Bruce Toops and other people were heavily involved in the development program. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I always had a saying, I might've even picked it up, stole it from Bruce Toops. Um, when, when you have a doubt about how to proceed on something, look at the organization and look at how things are organized and how, how they fall into place and the infrastructure. And again, I'm not on the inside, I have, but I do have friends who are, on the board of directors or, you know, heavily involved in USA judo and they're, they're really decent, good people. So it's not, a, you know, I, I want to stay positive on this because I believe 
they, they honestly are trying to do their best. I but, believe that too. Yeah, yeah, I really do. Uh, but but I just don't know. I'm not privy to you know if there's money for for funding for athlete development. I don't see any athlete development the way Bruce did, and I don't see recruitment for young coaches. Now they may be doing that. I just don't know about it. But um, I don't see that grassroots development that used to be there. We were, you know, one of the things that, again, Bruce Toops, and, and I was a big believer in, was development, grassroots, you know, like the old, what the movie from uh, the, the Right Stuff, you know, No Bucks, No Buck Rogers. Well, that's, that's clearly the case here. Uh, if you don't have a base to draw on, you're not going to have much of a base to draw on. And you, you've got to have a, a, a lot of people doing judo. You've got to have a lot of people organized doing judo. And, and I think we need to put really re, just reorganize and put back our efforts into developing more judo clubs, developing more people to get them involved in judo and how we can teach it more efficiently and create a better infrastructure for those clubs that are maybe less expensive for them to have insurance, whatever it may be. That's why I sought out the AAU with the, the judo program back in the nineties, because I know the AAU, um, they at one time were the governing body and then that the AAU judo committee then became USA judo, what it is now at that point through the evolved through time, USJI and with the same people who were running AAU judo became USJI back in 1980 when it changed. But the AAU then learned their lessons and they said, we've got to provide better, you know, better service for our members. And they did. So when I approached them in the nineties and I said, you know, we're looking for inexpensive insurance. So you, you, can we get it start judo again? And we did. And I think that's a, that's a case. That's that there are people out there who can work with us in American judo and are willing to work with us in American judo who can help us provide a better infrastructure. So, so we can provide better, uh, you know, better insurance for our instructors and coaches and better practice insurance for our athletes and students, things like that. Um, that's just one phase. Uh, but, and I, I don't know what they're funding. I, I don't know anything about, you know, where, where money is generated anymore. Uh, but uh, if money, money could be set aside for going back to what Toops did with those judo camps at the Olympic Training Center on a regular basis. I mean, gosh, we had, uh, when I was a junior development guy, we, we had camps all during the summer. Uh, you know, we, we'd have a, sometime a week camp, sometime a weekend camp, sometime a two-week camp. Uh, and, you know, we, we'd book them in and they, they were very cooperative and working with us. And of course, it came out of judo's budget. But, you know, nonetheless, we did it. And I don't know if that's still available. I just don't know. But I, I, all I can say is, is that we need to look back at the organization and how that money is being transferred to the development of athletes. And that's what that's what sports are about. They're about developing development. And that's where the bulk of the money, I think, should be going for the development of athletes. And I don't know if there's any funding at all available for if you make the world team anymore, the junior world team anymore, I just don't know. But I know back in the 80s and 90s when I was, you know, the world team, junior junior world team coach a couple of times, that, that trip was fully funded for the athletes. Those those kids didn't pay, you know, really anything. And, it, and the U.S. judo paid for it. So yeah, I, and these days I don't think all of the athletes on the national team are funded. They, a lot of them hmm. – to, to get over to, to you know, these competitions over in like Marrakesh or Paris, many of them have to pay out of pocket. They depend on, on donate on donors really. And, and they're working a lot of, uh, 
you know, full-time jobs, you're really just, just to be able to fund their, their, uh, Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to imply that we were totally funded and everything was a gravy okay. train. It wasn't because, you know, believe me, my wife and I, who was Becky was a very, very good athlete, both in judo and Sambo on the national international level. Uh, we lived like paupers during those years, you know, and where, where I had a budget to take kids over, I didn't have, I didn't get a salary. Uh, sure. I didn't, you know, I didn't get a stipend. I, you know, they, I did it on my own time, vacation time, I had a very lenient boss in my parks and rec system. They were very good to me. So I was able to do that type of thing. But, um, but uh, you know, if, if athletes really have to dig deep in their pockets, that's taking time away from their training and their development, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I would hope I, I see it in other sports. Maybe they can get sponsors to help sponsor these different teams. I don't know, but there must be, again, go back to the organization. It just, you know, just somehow maybe they should, come up with some different ways to develop at the grassroots level. And again, I come back to grassroots all the time because I think that's the, the main thing we've got to do, you know, when, when, whether it's USA judo or the JA or the JF, or certainly us in our AAU judo program and judo black belt association, no matter what the organization, uh, just like uh, the, the old politician Tip O'Neill said years ago, all politics is local. You know, it's a quote. Well, right. all judo is local too really, when you look at it. And if you don't have that local club or local clubs develop athletes, um, having a national training camp does you no good because there's nobody to attend or the people who are attending aren't that very good at all. So they have to like teach basics to them when they're there. And that's not a good situation. Right. So, so uh, you know, we've got to come back to the roots of what judo is uh, to, to develop at the local level and, um, you know, work with other sports, work with, you know, sponsors somehow to get judo more involved in, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, and I came back to it before, you know, and I, I, again, I don't know into the inside baseball of it, but the NAIA, the NCAA, if we could talk to them about getting judo in the colleges, I don't know if it's possible, it may not be at all possible. I don't know, but you know, different groups we could work with and try to get more exposure to judo. Um, because at one time, Judo was a huge sport in this country. Yep. But again, so we also have to remember then back then there weren't a lot of competition. There wasn't a lot of competition for judo. There wasn't too much taek there wasn't any taekwondo. There wasn't too much karate. Uh, there was no Brazilian jiu-jitsu. There was no, you know, uh, you know, you know, like amateur wrestling is now very organized and huge. So there were less wrestling clubs around back in the 60s and 70s. So we did have that, you know, that uh, gift of not having too much competition back then. But even now, in the cir current circumstances, um, why can't we work with maybe some other sports, you know, uh, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Sambo, or wrestling, to coordinate with some of these governing bodies for these sports and see if maybe they can attend some of our judo camps and, and coordinate with us, you know, and, and, and work, you know, some cross-training there to maybe recruit some of these athletes from these other disciplines to come out and try for, you know, international level judo or national level judo. I know in our, in our AAU judo program, uh, the, the rules are such, you know, we have pre 2008, you know, we have two sets of rules. We have the standard AAU rules, which are basically the, the Yuko, Wazari and, and Ipon pre 2008 rules. That's one set. We also have the freestyle judo contest rules. So we actually have two sets of rules we work with. We did that on purpose so we could have more, you know, our athletes could have more uh, chance at development competition. Sure. And, uh, you know, 
why, why, why shouldn't the governing body do that? Well, you know, why, why not have different types of rules for different, you know, levels? I mean, that makes sense. So that, that's, that's the thing about organization, you know, and there, there you can, you know, work with people like us who will be glad to work with them and help them, you know, give our ideas and, and, and coordinate with programs. So, yeah, you know, I, I think, and, and I was going to make a point also that in a lot of our AAU judo programs, especially our freestyle judo competitions, we get a lot of BJJ and Sambo guys come into those and they love the rules. In fact, I had one uh, when uh, James Wall hosted the nationals, uh, he's done it several times, but a few, a few years back, there was a, a Sambo guy uh, that walked up to me and I, I knew him from Sambo cause I'm involved in Sambo as well. And he said, he said, I didn't, you know, I didn't know judo could be this much fun. He said, really? He said, he said, I've been to judo rules competitions before. And he said, you know, uh, I, I got disqualified. He said, I, and I still don't know why I got disqualified. He said, but with you guys, I understand the rules and it, it you know, and it was a lot of fun and he didn't win. He, he took second. So he wasn't necessarily just happy that he won the gold medal. He sure. did, but he was, he was happy with the experience and he's been back since to compete in those nationals again. So you know, that can be done. We can, we can cross train with these other disciplines to get people involved. And, uh, we should, and also our judo athletes, uh, should be doing Sambo and BJJ and, you know, submission grant, whatever, you know, if they, you know, we should allow them to do that. But I, I don't know if the IGF allows that or permits that if they're on the international team, I don't know if that's a, uh, you know, like a, a taboo they can't do anymore. I just don't know about the rule, but uh, yeah, they, they don't, they don't, they don't allow it if you're a highly ranked competitor and it, and it makes sense in, in the same way that you wouldn't yeah. want, you oh, know, yeah. for example, Le LeBron James playing wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns or something oh, like that. You, you know, so yeah, at that, at that highest level, I think it does make sense, but certainly, mm -hmm. certainly for any, any, any national level competitors and, and lower, um, you know, that, that kind of cross training just makes you a better overall grappler. You know, you speaking that he's saying that, you know, we talk about the, uh, you know, the, the IGF rule about top level competitors. Um, in 1983, uh, this was an interesting thing about Anne Maria DeMars, good friend of mine and my wife's, um, she, she, you know, she won the world championships in 1984, the first U S athlete to win a world judo title in 1983. She won the Pan American games down in Caracas. Okay. Well, I was I was heavily involved in Sambo too by the also at that time, and so I was kind of living a, a dual life there, and uh, so I was the uh, Pan American Games coach for the women team women's team, and and I it was my job to to select a, a you know a butt kicking team to to go down to the the uh, Pan American Games, and of course the, the, you know there weren't many women wrestlers if any at that time, so I naturally you know my wife and my sister in law and. Lynn Rothke and Gracie Jividen, all her, you know, my wife's friends and women I coached over the years at camps. I, you know, I said, Hey, would you be interested in coming out and trying Sambo? And so we had some Sambo training camps and we developed a great team. We won the team title, by the way, by, you know, down there in the Pan Am games, the Sambo uh, championships. And um, so anyway, I, I contacted my good friend, Ann Maria DeMars and, and, uh, and she was Anne Maria Burns at the time. She was, that was her name. And, and I said, uh, look, um, you know, I'd like you to come out. You know, it was our, our, our lightweight for the Sambo team for the Pan Ams. She said, oh, I'd love to. And so she came and, of course, she took to Sambo like a duck to water. I mean, she was great. And um, so, but she also qualified for, now, we didn't have our trials yet for the Sambo team yet, but she'd come to the camps and trained with me and all that. 
but uh, she also qualified for the Pan Am teams in judo, Pan Am games in judo. So she could have actually gone both judo and samba because samba was first. And I think judo was a week later in the calendar of events for the competition. Right. And, uh, but anyway, so Frank Fullerton, you know, and he was the president of U.S. Judo at the time, and he did a great job at it. Uh, he called me, and I knew Frank quite well because I've worked with him a lot in judo. And he said to me in his you know, South Texas accent that, that uh, he had a lot of people make fun of, but it was a good one. But anyway, he said to me, he said, Steve, he said, um, we can't have Ann Maria going on the Sambo team. She's, she's going to do judo, and that's, that's her main thing. And I said, well, I know that, Mr. Fullerton, but, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think she could win the gold medal. He said, I think she, he said, I think she could win the gold medal in judo, too. I said, well, she could win a double gold medal. He said, no, you don't get me, son. He said, I don't want her to, I, I don't want her to get injured in Sambo. He said, I don't want to take that chance. And he said, she, she, you know, we, we think she can win. And I, yeah, that's right. And so anyway, uh, he made a lot of sense. He made a lot of sure. sense. And, and judo really was her main sport. And so I called her and talked to her and she said, no, no, I want to, I want to win them both. But she said, given the, yeah, yeah, I want to win the judo because I want to be the world judo champion in which she won the Pan Am games in judo. Then the next year in Vienna, she won the world judo championships. And, um, so she, she, she did that. She made history there, but I, we were that close to having Anne Maria, uh, be a gold medalist. I, I know she would have won the gold medal in Sambo. She would have won both the gold medal in Sambo and judo had she permitted to do that. But th that was a totally common sense way to do it. The Frank Fullerton looked at it. It was, it made absolute sense to me. I didn't gripe at all about it. I totally understood his position. I would have probably had the same position too. So, um, but yeah, that's how you can see. You, sometimes you got to make that choice. And I see why the IGF has that rule for very top level athletes. But for the development athletes, we can still cross train. We can still have these people do different sports and get good at them and come back to their primary sport and be even better at it. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and Lynn Rothke is a good example of that. You know, she, she did, a, she was a, a world bronze medalist in Sambo, won the Pan, Am, Pan American Games gold medal in Sambo. Then she went on to have a fantastic judo career and become a, an Olympic silver medalist in 1988 in Seoul. So uh, there was a good example of an athlete who in her development years uh, cross-trained in the Sambo and, and then used that experience with her tremendous talent in judo to be a, a literally a world-class, you know, Olympic level athlete. And um, so, uh, you know, but yeah, I, I, do get, I do understand IGF for their, their position. That, that, that makes sense, you know. Well, Steve, I, I really appreciate the time that you spent on this uh, th this podcast. Once again, I, I love having you on. I love hearing the stories. Um, I'm very. I'm, I want to congratulate you for for your latest book, and um, and certainly I encourage all my listeners to 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 give it a read. It you can get a hardcover copy of it, and you can get a Kindle version of it on, on Amazon.com. Amazon.com or, or Barnes and Noble or go to YMAA.com. Anywhere books are sold. Uh, but uh, uh, see, they, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. I thought maybe it was just just Amazon. I didn't realize you can get it at Barnes and Noble. That's fantastic. Yeah, sure enough. And, and uh, I'll tell you, YMAA has been great in marketing this. And uh, I, I think uh, the more people find out about it. And, and again, I'm not doing it for like to get rich or famous. I'm a coach. I mean, that's really what I am. And, and at the heart of it, I'm actually very rather a private person. I you know, I don't want to be a celebrity. I just enjoy coaching and teaching. And I think this book, uh, again, getting back to the reasons I wrote it, 
I hope this book, when it stands on the work of many other great people like Jeff Gleason, Don Dreger, uh, many other great people who have come before me, and I'm certainly not in, in their league, but I hope this can be used as a great reference source for many years to come. And that was one of the points of it, because this is the, the kinesiology of Judah. This is the biomechanics tied into the traditional way of teaching it. And you know what? It stood the test of time. And I think my book can, can be part of that positive addition to somebody's library and how to do Judah more efficiently. So that's that's the way it was written. So, yeah. Thanks for having me on about that and, and let me talk about it because it's uh, I believe in it. I think it's a good product and I think uh, people will enjoy the book. I really do. Fantastic. Steve. Well, again, it was great having you on and uh, I'm sure we'll keep in touch throughout the rest of the year. We sure will. Good talking to you again, my friend. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open.